0: Well, it's great to be here with the few and the mighty. I was really pleased when Chris asked me. He said he wanted someone familiar to you all. (laughs) But I have to say that uh, when Elizabeth told me that there was now air conditioning here, I said there is a God. (laughs) (laughs) So let's pray to that God. Lord, we do thank you that you are present that you are good, that you are sovereign, and we thank you that you don't let us stay the same miserable sinners that you found, that you continue to shape us to be more like you. So we pray that you would do your work among us tonight. We pray in your gracious and mighty name. Amen. So I entitled this sermon, Life Interrupted, and if you just think for a few minutes over your last couple days, week, was there a time when you were interrupted? What were you doing when you were interrupted? We can be a little more casual tonight. What were you doing when you were interrupted? Living. Say it again. Living. 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 Somebody up here? sleeping dishes reading Reading. think about who interrupted you (laughs) did it make a difference who interrupted you yeah i see nods i hope it wasn't one of those phone calls That you don't want to get, there's been an accident, there's a diagnosis, or I'm okay mom, but the ambulance was really cool. (laughs) We've gotten that phone call. (laughs) But sometimes it's just those little things that interrupt us. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit bigger this week. Mark and I were having dinner downtown, and we're sitting along the sidewalk in Bellingham here, and it must have been 80% of the people were walking along with their phones, not talking, not texting. (laughs) They had Pokemon Go. (laughs) Sometimes it's an app that can be so disruptive in our lives. But are we willing to let God interrupt us? Are we willing to let God disrupt our lives? God interrupted one man's life. He was a man who was very, very zealous, who took his religion so seriously that he was willing to go out and have people imprisoned and even killed if they messed with his religion. He did not want them to interrupt his world, or disrupt it, and he was well-connected to the religious mucky-mucks of his day, and he got their support to go off to far-off cities to capture those who were threatening his church, but God interrupted him big time. So we're going to read this story tonight. It's in Acts 26, starting at verse 12, and I don't have the page number. If somebody can find it, they can holler it out, but would you stand with me as we read this? Acts twenty six, starting at verse twelve. Do you have a page? One hundred twenty two. Thank you. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, "'Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads.' Then I asked, "'Who are you, Lord?' "'I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting,' the Lord replied. "'Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness.'" of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You may be seated. Is this thing working well? Yes. Okay. I can't hear it. This was a major interruption. We most often call this man by his Greek name, Paul, but we had it here in the Semitic, his name, Saul, and I'll probably waffle between the two. But he was a passionate man who cared deeply about his religion, doing whatever it took. to keep and protect the status quo. His life was just kicking right along. And then he met Jesus. And the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, he describes Paul's conversion three different times in Acts. It's here and in chapters 9 and in chapters 22. And clearly, Luke thinks this is a really important thing for us to know about. But even though the main story is the same in all three accounts, the differences can be even more telling. And it's important for us to look at why Luke tells the story this way at this time. Luke doesn't tell us about Paul going blind— or about what happened in Damascus. He doesn't even mention Ananias, but there are two major additions. One is this phrase about the goads, and the second is Paul's commission, that he is commissioned personally by Jesus. All the emphasis in this account is, are on Jesus' words. And what does Jesus say? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard to kick against the goads. Who is Saul persecuting? He's persecuting the Christians. What does this have to do with kicking against goads? Goads are the metal or wooden prods, and they'd sharpen the points on them, and that's what they would use to keep oxen going the direction that they wanted to go. So if they got out of line, they'd get a poke from the stick. and the proverb, this is a proverb that was in lots of different writings in the ancient world, classic Greek writings. It meant to struggle against the gods or against your destiny. And in ancient Jewish literature, it usually referred to someone going against their conscience, and so their conscience is stabbing them. To kick against the goads then was to go against your destiny or maybe even the, your, the con, your conscience, and it was futile because they're always going to win. Saul is persecuting Christians, and he's fighting against Jesus Christ, and possibly against his own conscience. And it's futile. It's as futile as an ox trying to kick against that sharpened stick that's trying to get him where it wants it to go. You can kick all you want, but you're only going to hurt yourself. There's a mightier force that's on the move, and it is futile to fight against it. So in this passage, Saul is sharing his story to King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And there's also Festus, who is the new Roman governor of the region. And along with them, they said that there's high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city of Caesarea. So if it works, I have a few pictures. Mark and I got to go to Israel just a couple weeks ago and we'll see if my pictures will come up. Yay, this is Caesarea today. And uh, it was built by Herod the Great, and he really wanted to show how great he was. He built a whole port with a big bulkhead thing that, uh, for a place that didn't have a natural port, he built a great big uh, palace for himself way over here on the left. You can go to the next picture, giant amphitheater, Uh, Go ahead, I think there's another one. So this spot is the spot where they think the prison was where Paul was. And this is where they brought him out of prison to meet with these big mucky mucks. All the important people of that region are here to hear Paul, and he's sharing this story with them. Yeah, you can turn the, the pictures off now. Maybe Paul adds this bit about the goads because he's trying to prod King Agrippa and all these important people that are listening, trying to let them know how futile it is to go against what God is doing among them. Or maybe Luke includes this bit because he wants to challenge his readers, which of course includes us, to ask, Am I kicking against the goads? Are we futilely fighting against the direction that God wants to be moving? Saul thought he was obeying God. He was doing all this religious stuff. He was protecting his church. He was living his life the best way he knew. But God was moving in a totally different direction, and to fight was futile. So Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? It's noon when Saul sees this blazing light from heaven, brighter than the sun, it says, and it's going around, all around he and his companions. When the Bible, when you see bright stuff, it's usually a clue that that's the presence of God. So Saul is wisely responding, who are you, Lord? He knows there's God's stuff going on. And he hears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's learning two things here. One, that Jesus, the Jesus that he had heard so much about, who was crucified and put in a tomb he thought was dead, and his followers were messing up his world, this Jesus is alive. And from the bright lights and all, he's recognizing Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Saul has been on the wrong team. And second, by going after those who were persecuting, that that he was persecuting and killing those who followed Jesus, he was going after Jesus himself. Jesus' followers were somehow so intimately connected with Jesus that to harm his followers was to harm this God, Jesus, alive being. This is really not good news for Saul. If you were Saul, what would you be expecting now? I think I would be expecting to be judged. I think I would be expecting to be like and his buddies that we read in the book of Numbers. When he defied Moses, the ground splits open and it swallows him up, and he's gone. I think if I were Saul, that's how I would be feeling. But Jesus doesn't kill Saul. Jesus gives him a job. He tells him, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Now get up and stand on your feet. There is a time to fall prostrate in humility and reverence." But there is also a time to get up and stand on your feet. Jesus has a job for Saul, and he wants him to be up and ready. You get this image of a track runner that's just poised to run at the beginning of the race. Body is tensing forward, waiting for the gun to go off. Now get up and stand on your feet. Be attentive, be alert. You have a job to do. I have appeared to you to appoint you." What difference does it make whether you choose to do something or somebody appoints you to do something? If you choose to do it, you care if it gets done, but there's no outside force compelling you to do it. There's no accountability. There's no ha- it doesn't- Nobody else cares how or when it gets done. But if you are appointed to a task, someone has called you out special, genie. I appoint you, there's a sense of honor. There's a sense of, I want to do this job well and with excellence. There's also an expectation that it's going to be completed. And when somebody is appointed by someone respected, who has great authority, that confers that same authority on you. And when someone has been appointed by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns at the right hand of God, you're going to take that job pretty seriously. In John 15, 16, Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit fruit that will last. What is Saul appointed to? What's the fruit that he's supposed to bear? He is appointed to be a servant and a witness of what he has seen and what he will see of Jesus. A servant and a witness. These are the words I really want to rest on tonight. What does a servant do? Can you help me out? What does a servant do? Say it again? Obeys orders. Whatever the master wants them to do. What is the difference between a servant and a slave? Speak up for me. Willingness. Mm hmm. Salary, you could expect some kind of reward for it if you're a servant, right? Slave doesn't get anything. It's only ownership. ownership. Mm-hmm. A servant is there to help or assist. And a slave sometimes do, does the same thing. But again, they have the, the servant has, a slave, has the opportunity to say no, don't they? They can walk away from it if they don't want to. Slave is compelled. They're under servitude, that's what it's called. The only experience I really have of a servant was when we were in Mexico, and we had a gal named Rocio who came, and we were told that really you were expected to hire help in Mexico, it felt really weird to us, but it was gonna be kinda poor form as gringos if we didn't hire help in the home, so, Rosio comes and she was great. She helped us in just a multitude of ways. She did everything we asked, but Rosio could have said no. She could have walked away at any point, and we needed to reward her, we needed to pay her. At the end of our time there, we had filled up, I think it was Elizabeth's laundry basket, and we filled it with all the stuff from the fridge and all the stuff that we weren't going to carry home, toilet paper and all that stuff, and off she goes on the little taxi with her huge basket. Now, she could have just walked out at any time on us. I was a clueless gringa. What did I know? If I had been the Presidente de Mexico... I'm sure my word ha- would have carried a lot more weight in Rosio's life and what she would do. Thankfully, she was a wonderful woman and helped us. She served us well. She was faithful. She was consistent. She didn't come and make demands on us. She didn't come expecting us to fulfill her needs and desires. She, didn't, she was responsive to what we needed her to do. Now, the group in Panama, I've been chatting with Chris and folks that were going, they had a desire to serve the churches, to be servants of the churches that they're visiting. They wanted to listen well what their needs are. They may have had ideas, a list of things that they thought they might be doing, having gone on the mission field. I know that doesn't always mean a lot with that list that they give you before you go. They're going to listen to respond, to be a helpful in any way that they can. What does it mean to be a witness? You think about in a court of law, what does a witness say? Help me out. The truth. What they know, what they've seen. So if Nicole came up to be a witness, and she shared what Michael saw or experienced, it probably wouldn't go over very well. We want to hear what Nicole sees, what Nicole has experienced. Being a witness further defined how Saul was being a servant. His witness was not about how to build himself up. It was all about what he had seen of Jesus Christ. Jesus was going to rescue him. He was going to rescue him and protect him from the Jews and the Gentiles so that he could complete the purposes for which he had been called by Jesus. It's Jesus' purposes. It's for his help, assistance, building his kingdom, not Saul's. So when we read the Saul stories in Acts, you can see over and over and over again how God intervened and protected him. He used Romans, he used family members, he used the church, all kinds of ways. Jesus tells Saul that his mission is to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. He is handpicking him to go to the Gentiles. Now, Saul loved Jews. Saul was a Jew. He loved the Jewish religion. He was brought up by the very best teachers, of the Jewish religion. He had devoted his life to protecting the temple, the law, the purity of his people. But Jesus doesn't call him to be the apostle to the Jews. He calls him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's called him to go to these people that he has always thought of as unclean. Not just different, but these people were in a sense dirty, they were less than, they were separated from God and his people. He may have lived in the same terrain as these people, but this was definitely a cross-cultural mission for Paul. It was an interruption in his life in a really big way. Jesus is sending Saul to these pagan people who worship idols to share with them what he's experienced of Jesus. And as it says in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase the message, so they can see the difference between dark and light and choose light. See the difference between Satan and God and choose God. The words that the writer Luke uses in this section, they're reminiscent to the calls that we see in the Old Testament, to the times and prophets of exiles, to Ezekiel, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, Even more important, it echoes the language in the servant songs, and we read those a little bit earlier. Psalm 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness to be a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release and release from the dungeon for those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, is it It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The nation of Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus, as we see him described in Isaiah, was to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus quotes from Isaiah in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he concluded by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Saul, his call, its words similar to the prophets of of Israel. It's similar to the words of Jesus himself to be a light to the gentiles to open eyes to turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to the power of God. The baton is passed from Israel to Jesus to Saul to us. To us. This this call is it just to Saul? Certainly, he had a very specific role. Jesus told his disciples that they were cho- chosen and appointed to go and bear fruit. Is that call only to those original 12? What has Jesus chosen us for? Our essential call is the same. We carry on Christ's mission. We carry on Paul's mission, even though the circumstances and the specific ways that we might do that might differ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you seek to follow him, he calls you to get up and stand on your feet. He wants you to be ready, to be alert, to be leaning into his promises and his purposes for you. He calls you, he chose you, Jesus Christ appoints you to be his servant and his witness, to help him, to assist him in fulfilling his kingdom purposes, to witness what you have seen and what you have experienced of Jesus Christ in your own life. It may be in a cross-cultural mission, here or abroad, or it might just be here in Bellingham, to your family, your neighbors, in your workplace. In verse 18, there's that little word, so. In my Bible, it's circled. This is the result of what happens when we are servants and witnesses, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We can become immune to the power of Christ's forgiveness. Jeannie mentioned earlier just that recognition of coming from the darkness to the light. It's clear that the world needs to turn from darkness. We see that all around us. We have a beautiful, beautiful call, a beautiful message to be shared to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. In the days of of Paul, of Saul, it was pretty clear. These people were worshiping idols. They worshiped statues. They They had mouths, but they didn't speak. Eyes, but they could not see. And Psalm 135 says, those who make them and trust in them become like them. It is so clear that they needed to turn away from darkness, right? They needed to turn to the living God, the only true God, the creator of the universe, the sender of our savior and Lord. Now, I've got a few more pictures if you can bring up the next couple. We also went to a place called Caesarea Philippi and it is at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And Keep going, keep going. There's another one and then go along. Yes, so if you see this dark cave up to the top left I hope you can see that in the times of of Jesus the actual spring came out of this cave and now there was later there was an earthquake and so now the spring comes up and you can't really tell but there's a beautiful river that's coming down just to the left here in Jesus day up you can go to the next one this was a big religious center and they worshiped Baal and Baal, it was thought because where the water came out, that's the cave closer, but where they thought where the water came out was where Baal would go back and forth to the underworld. So they would toss in human sacrifices into that cave. Are we gonna be able to bring up the other ones? Okay. <laughs> I'll just keep talking. Uh, and so you're gonna see that there's like a, a platforms in front of this. They had built temples up in front of this cave. And there was all kinds of sexual practices that took place there that we don't need to describe. And they thought by giving these sacrifices and doing all these things that that it would cause them to be more fertile. So they also worshiped another god there called Pan. And Pan was half goat and half man. And he had this assorted nymphs and there was a big niche in the wall that was carved out, if we can get that to show. Yeah, where they would had this huge t- uh, statue of Pan, and then there was a bunch of other niches in the walls for all these little nymphs that they had, could worship. And now this, this statue, this is kind of gross, but he had a large detachable male part that they would take off and march around in their festivals. <laughs> and um, you can keep going the next one. This is just, they had the various temples in front of these places where bad stuff took place. Is that the last one? I don't remember. Okay. So the Romans called this place the Rock of the Gods because they thought that Baal, that's where he came in and out, and the Jews called it the Gates of Hell. No good Orthodox Jew would go near this place and what was going on there. But right before Jesus goes to Jerusalem that last time, he came up to Caesarea Philippi. And they think it was likely very close to this spot that he asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do do the people say the Son of Man is? And Peter proclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you remember what Jesus responded, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gates of hell. Our leader for our group was Tim Kuyper and he shared with us that these disciples were standing here surrounded by all this false worship of false gods and in the midst of this Peter recognizes that Jesus is the son of the living God. God the living God, and on this rock, the rock of the gods, the most repugnant place possible for a good Jew, where the most disgusting practices were going on of false worship, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. They're not going to be overcome. or The gates of hell will not Be able to stand against this. Pagan practices, sacrifices to other gods, worshiping the created, not the creator, they will never overcome Christ's church. On this rock, Christ will build his church. On his his ecclesia, this community of called out ones, on this rock. He's gonna build the church and we're gonna be sent out as servants and witnesses to the living God. Where are the Caesarea Philippi's of today? Where is Christ building his church? We don't have worship to Baal or Pan or his nymphs, but we have a lot of other idols in our culture, don't we? They are false gods just as clearly as Pan was, and if we put them before the living Christ, they're going to only lead to blindness, darkness, and death. Now, when I became a Christian, I wasn't this horrible, awful person. I was just living my life separate from God. I was making my decisions without any reference to a God at all, and then Jesus interrupted my life in a big way. I didn't even know I needed forgiveness. I didn't know I was even sinning. I was better than my siblings, I thought. I must be doing pretty well. But I was worshiping the created and not the creator, worshiping idols that didn't speak or hear, leading a life that just led to darkness and despair and death. We have an amazing message of life, of light, of hope. And we live in this world that so desperately needs to hear it. If you just have to read the news or talk to your friends and neighbors. I was so grateful that a couple guys in my dorm had the courage, had the courage to share with me. But it isn't just about our personal salvation or enjoying his forgiveness, worshiping the living God, we are to serve and witness to others so that they gain a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. It's kind of a mouthful, but so so others can find a place at the table. The message says, we help them get a place in the family, inviting them into the company of those who who begin real living by believing in Jesus. A place at the table. To the Gentiles who were seen as unclean and never had a place at the table, who had no place at the temple, who were clearly not a part of God's chosen people. This is radical. By turning to God, turning to the light, receiving forgiveness in Christ, they are now welcome to the family, a family of the chosen, part of God's holy people, holiness that's not defined by the temple or the law. Sanctified means set apart for sacred use. Through faith in Christ, we become a family set apart for God's purposes. To the Gentiles of Paul's day who had no part of God's people, this is really huge for us today. This is still really huge. Through faith in Christ, we have the opportunity to become a part of a community. And I know Chris, he talks all the time about this with you. This is not news. But we are part of a family that is set apart for Christ's purposes to be his servants and witnesses. When we take communion, which we will in a few minutes, it is not an individual act. It is communal. Together, we bear witness to what Christ has done for us. Together, we are the family of the chosen. Together, we are appointed as servants and witnesses. Together, we turn hearts from darkness to light, from Satan to God. Together, we have a message of forgiveness and hope, and together, we welcome others into the family of the chosen. Has God interrupted your life? Have you turned from those idols that take and never give? Have you turned from darkness to light, from the power